Um, I'm going to introduce my co-presenter first. We have uh, Katie Santolo here. She's a partner over at Keiko Weissman and Colasanti, where she concentrates her practice in all areas of family law, including divorce, custody, child support, modification, alimony, paternity matters. You know, she does it all. Um, since 2013, Katie's also been actively involved in the ARC program, Attorneys Representing Children through Middlesex Probate and Family Court, which provides pro bono representation of children in high conflict domestic relations proceedings. Uh, my name is Jen Silva, and I'm a senior attorney at Mavridis Law. Um, like Katie, I practice domestic relations law. I represent clients in most counties in eastern Massachusetts, including Plymouth County, Middlesex, Suffolk, Norfolk, Essex, Bristol counties. I'm occasionally out in Worcester and down in Barnstable too. So between Katie and I, I think we have a good um, idea of how all the different counties, at least in Eastern Mass, um, handle pretrial conferences. So that's what we're here to talk about today, pretrial conferences and the four-way meeting in a divorce case. Essentially, a pretrial conference is a time for the parties and their attorneys to appear in front of the judge and outline the issues that remain contested in a case. It's an opportunity to get valuable feedback from a judge regarding those contested issues with the hope that with that feedback, you'll be able to bridge gaps and, and move the, the case towards settlement. Um, but there is some strategy when you're when you're you know deciding um, when to have a meeting and you know whether or not to move forward with the pretrial conference at certain times in a case. So that Katie and I are here to talk to you about those things today. The pretrial conference is scheduled by the court and you know, the timing of the pretrial really depends on what county your case is in. Some counties assign pretrials much quicker than others. Um, generally speaking, you, you know, I, I preface this with usually because you never know, but usually you're not going to get a pretrial conference prior to, you know, at least six months after the filing of the case. Now, during that time, there's a lot of work to do. So you're not just on pause waiting for that hearing. Um, but the pretrial notice is a very important document. You'll get it in the mail from the court. And you need to make sure that you review it very carefully because there's very important information on that. First, you know, it's going to have the date, time, and location of the hearing. Um, if it's by Zoom, it will be noted that it's by Zoom. But I'm finding most judges are having pretrials in person now <clears throat> and not by Zoom. Um, some judges would include a discovery deadline on that form. So be on the lookout for that. Um, it also includes the requirement for counsel and parties to sit down prior to the um, pretrial conference to discuss the case. And that's what we call the four-way meeting. Um, and it says that usually this, this each pretrial notice says that the, the four-way meeting should occur at least seven days prior to the pretrial conference. And we'll talk about timing of the four-way um, shortly. And page two of the pretrial notice usually has all the information that you need to make sure you outline in your pretrial memo. So it's important that you pay, pay close attention to that. Now, like I said, you know, your judge is going to expect that you've used the time between your filing of the complaint or responding to the complaint and the pretrial wisely in the effort to move this case forward and, you know, prep for uh, trial um, or settlement, in, as, as the case may be. Um, during this period, um, but prior to the pretrial, discovery should be essentially completed Um you know, there are some exceptions depending on your judge, depending on when there is a firm, if there is a firm discovery deadline uh, prior to the pretrial conference, you might um, be able to do most of the written discovery and forego depositions until after the pretrial if you don't have a firm discovery deadline. Now, if you do have a firm discovery deadline, judges mean it, <laughs> you know, the discovery should be completed. And that includes depositions, that includes appraisals, et cetera. Um, you know, nothing aggravates a judge more than, you know, attorneys showing up at a pretrial, not ready, you know, not having, you know, completed the tasks to allow for a productive pretrial conference. And you don't want to be the attorney that, you know, shows up um, and has the judge read you the riot act for, you know, not getting appraisals done, not completing discovery. Um, because because essentially judges and I understand judges see that as a waste of the court's time. Why are you here if you haven't done the work to, to get you a productive hearing? 
So one of those tasks before the pretrial, as I said, is the four-way conference. <clears throat> and a four-way conference is required by the court. As I said, it's on that pretrial notice. And it's a required meeting between parties and counsel, or if someone's pro se, you know, your client, you, and the pro se opposing party, uh, to sit down and discuss the case prior to going to the pretrial. Now, the, the goal would be to resolve the case during that meeting. In which time, you know, you will be able to um, draft up a separation agreement and hopefully use the pretrial date to get the parties divorced, have the uncontested hearing during the, the what was supposed to be a contested pretrial. That's why judges want it, don't want them to be at the last minute. When I say them, I mean the, the four-way meeting to be at the last minute because that doesn't give the counsel time to, you know, to draft up an agreement or to, to try to settle the case. So you want to give yourself enough time, you know, being a, in an optimist to try to resolve the case get an agreement drafted and signed, and then go to the pretrial conference for the uncontested hearing. Um, now, at a minimum, if you're unable to resolve the case fully at the pretrial, the goal is to narrow the issues. So when you go before the judge at the pretrial, you're talking about very specific issues that are keeping us apart from resolving the case. You know, for instance, a judge, judge doesn't want to hear when they ask, you know, why haven't your case settled? What's keeping you apart? How can I be helpful? Um, well, judge, we don't agree on the division of the assets. You know, that doesn't tell the judge anything. You know, you need to be more specific. If you actually, you know, sit down with the opposing counsel and talk it through, you might, you know, be able to really narrow it. Judge, we agree that wife is going to keep the marital home, but husband is looking for reimbursement of a down payment that he made with inheritance money. You know, so then it's, it's a more narrowed issue that the judge is able to um, speak to and give you some valuable feedback on. Um so the timing of the four-way conference, like I said, it's, it's it's a little bit of an art. You don't want to have it be, like I said, too close to the pretrial, one, because it has to at least be seven days before. And depending on the case, it should maybe even should be a little bit further, because if there's hope to settle, you want to have that sit down, you know, with even a, a little more time to give you time to, afterwards to draft the agreement, have it signed and walk in or hopefully even file beforehand the signed agreement. Um but on the other hand, you don't want to schedule it too soon in the case. And what I mean by that is, you know, you like I said, you need discovery to be completed. For instance, you can't go into a four-way meeting and talk about a buyout of the marital home if you don't have appraisals done, or the, at least if there's not a stipulation as to value, because how can you talk numbers if there's not at least a meeting of the minds as to what this home is, is worth? Um, so, you know, that's important. If it's a highly contested custody case and there's a guardian ad litem doing an investigation, I would say it's important to have that guardian ad litem report you know, received and reviewed by the parties before you sit down to talk about negotiating custody. You know, how can, you know, if there's if there's a disagreement as to legal custody, and that's something that the GAL is investigating, um, you know, the parties probably want to hear what the jail has to say before they're willing to negotiate. Um, so that that's very important. I mean, you don't want to go to a pretrial, I mean, excuse me, a four-way meeting without the information to make that productive. Once again, without that underlying information, you're just wasting everyone's time. And there's there's nothing more frustrating. I've, I've had it happen to me. I'm sure Katie has as well. Where you go to a pretrial and you're ready to talk numbers and specifics and the other side is more okay, yeah, we agree, generally speaking, to a 50-50 division, we'll talk about a buyout. Where, you know, To me, that's a, a surefire indication that the attorney was not prepared <laughs> because you know, th that we're, we're beyond the, the, the talks of you know, generalities and we're supposed to be talking specifics at this point in time. Um, location of the four-way conference. You know, I, I'm not a big stickler. You know, some attorneys I've dealt with you know, insist on it being at their office. You know, I, I'm, uh, to me, it doesn't make a whole, you know, huge difference. Um, I've had four ways, you know, since the pandemic, I've had four ways um, via Zoom, you know, so that's that's something I do a lot lately. Um, I'm not sure if judges are going to start to crack down and say, you know, they need to be in person again, uh, which was a requirement prior to, to the pandemic. Um, but as for, you know, in-person meetings, you know, I consider when I'm selecting a location, you know, I look at, you know, where the parties are located, where the other attorney is located. You know, if Katie's office is outside the city and mine's in the city and all the parties are outside the city, it's probably easier for me to be traveling to Katie's office than everyone else to be traveling into the city. You know, I get that. Um, 
I also think about, you know, the, the particular case and if one attorney has two, con- you know, two conference rooms where we can kind of have the have the parties separate with attorneys and, you know, have a comfortable space for the parties to be, you know, sp- speaking with their attorneys while the negotiations are going on. Um, another thing I sometimes think about it in more highly contested cases Um I've had four ways where it becomes nasty. You know, you you, you want to tell your client that's not the way it should go and there's no name calling and we're here to be productive. Otherwise, we are, we're going to leave, um, you know, and and at times the other party, you know, gets nasty. And it's easier to, in my opinion, it's easier to, you know, after you, you know, urge the other side to, you know, take it down a notch and, you know, let's focus on what we're here for. Um you know, after a period of time, I've suspended the meetings and it's easier for me and my client to walk out of someone else's office than to essentially try to throw them out of my office. So, you know, I keep that in mind as well. Um, you know, preparation for your client for the four-way meeting. Now, as attorneys, we do this all the time. So, you know, thinking about, you know, okay, the four-way meeting's coming up, you know what that means. It's not really stressful to you. You know, it's it's commonplace in our world. Most most uh, clients, that's not the case, right? They don't. They've never experienced this before. Some haven't even been face to face or had any communication with their soon to be ex spouse in quite some time. So the idea of sitting in a room or via Zoom with their you know soon to be ex spouse is stressful. So I kind of just prepare them for that. Let them know that. It's an informal, um, you know, discussion. A lot of most of the discussions will be, you know, had between attorneys, um, you know, and and also, like I said, remind them that we're there to be productive. There's no name calling. It's not time for finger pointing. You know, let's just focus on, you know, I kind of refer to as the business of a divorce, right? That's what we're focusing on during this this meeting. Um, prep in advance, what to prep in advance of this meeting. Now, it's very important to, in my opinion, to have exchanged financial statements recently prior to a four-way meeting. You know, if, if your case is lengthy and you exchange financial statements, let's say nine months ago, you know, you probably want to refresh that and have updated information prior to the four-way meeting because the law can change in nine months. So I think that's important. Um Depending on the case, sometimes I even like to send out um, a, a proposed separation agreement, you know, maybe about a month before we are sitting down for a meeting, because I've had many cases where we use that separation agreement kind of as the guideline for the meeting. And we go through and we kind of skip, oh, yep, we agree on the insurance stuff. So we can just skip that right over that and really focus on the terms that are problematic. So, you know, I don't do that in all cases. It really depends on the case. And you know, where we're at. Um, but like I said, in advance of the meeting, you got to make sure appraisals are done um, or, or values are stipulated to. Um, JL reports are reviewed by the parties. Um, and, and that way we can, you know, focus on talking specifics and not just in generalities. So, you know, the, at the time of the four-way, you know, my, my four-way meeting is always different, right? There's no cookie cutter way that I handle every single case. Um, you know, generally speaking, I usually, you know, when we all sit down together, I'll usually, you know, thank the parties for participating and let them know that we're here because it's required by the court. And the goal is to, you know, talk through the issues of your case, hopefully resolve your case. Or if not, we're going to be before the judge and, you know, 10 days and the judge will give us feedback on what we don't agree upon. So it's good to kind of, you know, remind the parties about what we're here for. Um, and then as far as kind of how I run the meeting, I tend to like to start off with the the terms that are, you know, ag- you know, essentially agreed upon. They're not that complex. They're not hot button issues that are going to you know, send someone into a frenzy um, because for a couple of reasons. One, I think it, it's almost psychologically it's 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 nice to be checking issues off. Right. If we can go through insurances and, you know, um, Maybe there's not an issue about custody and parenting time. They agree on that. We can check that off. We can check off, you know, different, um, you know, college. You know, the kids are young, so there's not much to fight about regarding future college. Um, And so I like to, I think it it gains momentum for the parties when they see that there are things we are agreeing on. And look, we're pretty close. We agree on everything except for the last two issues, right? Um, It it, it kind of makes the parties more, um, I find, more... um, uh, willing to, you know, 
bend a little bit when you're almost there. Look how much progress we've made. Um, and the other reason why I like to start off with the um, uh, less confrontational issues is there are certain issues that cause, you know, someone to get very angry or to be very emotional. And if I save that to the end, at least we've talked about everything else. We've had a productive meeting. We've fulfilled the court's requirement such that if, if we're talking about a hot button issue and, you know, wife decides she needs to leave, she can't do this anymore. You know, it, we've, you know, at least we've gone through everything else. Right. So, you know, like I said, Every case is a little different, but I really go into my four-way meetings with that kind of general structure in mind. Um, they tend to have a life of their own, but I, I try to kind of follow that that pattern. Um, so now I'm going to turn it over to Katie to talk about the pretrial memo and the actual pretrial conference. Thanks, Jen. <clears throat> I apologize. I have a bit of a cold, so forgive my voice. Um, so one of the things I just wanted to touch on that, that Jen mentioned was um, discovery ahead of the pretrial. So some judges, um, this is sort of a strategy piece. Some of them absolutely require that it be done and some don't. Sometimes you get a pretrial notice, uh, one of those forms and not something that's handwritten. And it just tells you the date of the pretrial conference. So you have to make a decision as counsel. Do I do everything ahead of the pretrial? Do I just do paper discovery and we table the depots? Let's see how you know, let's save our clients some money. Let's see how the pretrial goes. And then if we have to, we can take take the depths afterward. And maybe at the pretrial, that's when you ask the judge, can we please have a discovery deadline so that you can start, you know, really start preparing the case. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen a judge say, no, you can't have a discovery deadline. I think they, <laughs> they prefer it. Um, so that's just sort of a strategy piece. In terms of the pretrial memo itself, <clears throat> So actually, let me back up. The pretrial conference itself. This is um, a time for you to tell the court your client's position. We are salespeople, and this is our chance to give the sales pitch to the judge, and hopefully they buy it. That's the goal. Um, and so you have to put everything in a pretrial memo. I say, I actually wrote one today, and I said, you know what? I'm not holding anything back because I need to know where this case is going, good, bad, or indifferent. Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. You know, you got to ask for feedback. You need it to move the case forward. And maybe it's not good for your client, but at that point, you're going to know and your client can make the decision. Am I going to try this case later? Or am I going to do what I can do to settle this case that's, you know, best for everybody? So um, don't hold back. Don't, you know, put it all in the memo, lay it all out there. Because if you don't, you're going to wish that you had, because maybe if you had said something, the judge could have given feedback on that piece. So the pretrial memo itself, everybody's memos look different, but they all have the same um, requirements, which is on that pretrial notice that Jen mentioned on page two, it details what should be in there. So the way that I typically like to set mine up, and again, everybody does theirs different, I put my theory of the case right out in the front, right at the very beginning, because my whole thought is, what if a judge is really busy that day and he or she doesn't have a chance to get to page five where I hit my theory? I want to hit it right in the front. I want it. The very first thing that they read is this is what this case is about. And then you then you go into it. And then later you can deal with, you know, the offers of proof, which I'll get to. But I that's how I like to do it. I think it's the most effective because if they only read page one, make sure it's a good one. That's how I like to look at it. Um, so then after I have my theory, I have. Um, the stipulation of uncontested facts, what you what you and the other side are probably going to agree to the day they were married, the day they separated, you know, do they have kids? What are their birth dates? Where do they live? Are they employed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then the next, you know, next section is contested issues, division of assets, alimony, parenting plan, legal custody, whatever it might be. Um, then I have a section on status of discovery. So, and that that tells the court. Uh, we've promulgated paper discovery, you know, wife hasn't answered, husband completed everything. It's also a chance to sort of, if you want to, if you need to get the court's attention that the other side's not doing something, you know, that's that's a kind of a chance to to show that. Um, plus, the judge is going to want to know, am I, try, am I pre-trying a case where a discovery is done or not done? What have you people done? What have you not done? Um, because I think it certainly colors the way they look at it, because as Jen said, you people haven't even appraised this house. How am I supposed to help you? I don't, I, you know, so um, that's where you sort of put that information. Um, I usually have a section saying, you know, just the financial statement is filed, you know, with, with the memo. Um, 
listing your witnesses. Again, be overly inclusive here because sometimes judges, when they do orders for trials, will say only the witnesses listed on your pretrial memo. And you're like, oh man, I forgot to list so-and-so. It's like, well, too late. Judges will do that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you can always put in a piece that says, I'm reserving my right to call additional and rebuttal witnesses that as the litigation warrants, but be overly inclusive because you don't want to forget Mr. Smith and then you're precluded from calling him. Um, <clears throat> list of exhibits, same thing. Be overly inclusive. List as many things as you can possibly think of, but also reserve your right to introduce introduce additional exhibits as the litigation warrants. It, it's better that way. Um, I usually have a section that just says, you know, depositions are basically just used for the purposes that they're used for, which is impeachment. Unless, for example, you had an out-of-state deposition taken or something like that, and the person is not coming to testify. So um, if somebody lives in like California and you depose them, well, they're not coming for the trial. And you may want to write a little piece there about, I'm going to try to introduce this as an exhibit, which is a whole other issue that we're not here to talk about today, but I would put it in that section. (laughs) Um, Then if there's any stipulations as to values or... um, value of personal property or real estate. I have, I usually put it in a section. Um, and then an estimate, estimated time of trial. So definitely overestimate, I think not to like an absurd degree because the judges just roll their eyes, but you know, on a full divorce with all of the issues, parenting, you know, division of assets, I would typically say too, just to be safe, because, you know, as you probably know, sometimes the, the trial doesn't get started till 10 o'clock. So you've lost you've lost time and then there's a break. And so be overly inclusive, but not to the point of absurdity is how I would (laughs) word that. Um, And then the next section I do is the offer of proof regarding 2834. So I I just list out length of marriage, age of parties, health of parties, station, conduct. And I just put them in different categories and do a little blurb for each. It can be really, really short um, unless you feel the need, for example, on conduct to write something lengthy or you know, needs of parties, needs of the unemancipated children, um, you know. But I, I usually try to make that section fairly brief because it's sort of a not a regurgitation, but you may have already touched on some of it in the theory anyway. Because the two eight thirty four factors are kind of what informs your theory most often. Um, and then the last section I always say is the you know the statement that we've tried to resolve this, um, which is specifically mentioning when did we have the four way meeting. Um, I usually say, you know, the parties and council met on such and such a day while we made progress on this, this, and this, unfortunately we couldn't resolve this issue. I sometimes try to do that. Um, and usually, you know, as Jen said, if you're narrowing the issues and you can agree with council, Hey, you know, I think the real issue here is child support. I think the real issue here is college. You know, you can tell the court we've resolved all issues except for this and this. And so we're seeking guidance on this. Um, and, and that's, again, how you can tailor your theory is it doesn't need to be a full blown. Everything's an issue because that's a waste of time. Um, <clears throat> so when to file the memo three days in advance, every single pre the, the form pretrial notices say three days. So long ago, people didn't really most judges didn't pay attention. That There were a few that were pretty big sticklers. But since COVID um, and, you know, the age of e-filing, they expect it. They expect it to be filed three days. There's no reason that you can't do it. Um, and they want it. And I think, you know, I've heard clients say, I'm sure you all have too. But what if the other side doesn't do it? I don't really care because just because the other side, you know, is doing something doesn't mean I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to follow what the order says. It says three days. And not only am I following the order, but. The hope is it gets in the file and if the judge, some judges will read these in advance, Mm -hmm. they will read them cover to cover. And so the goal is get it in the file so that when the judge is looking, the judge pulls file, it's already there. It's already there. They can read it. They're going to be prepared. They're going to have an understanding because the last thing you want to do is spend all your time writing a 10 page memo that nobody ever reads, get it in on three days. And now I think some of the judges are really cracking down on it because there really is, is no reason. We know, like Jen said, I know six months in advance when a pretrial is going to be. So, you know, write it up, get it done. And yeah, sometimes it's annoying because, you, you know, I get it. You're, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You file it. The other side doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't mean I'm going to do the same thing that they're doing. It is unfortunate because, yeah, maybe they'll read what you wrote, but it doesn't change anything because my theory is my theory. I don't care what they say. I don't care if they try to tailor it. 
I'm not changing what I'm going to say. And I want the judge to read it. Um, so some of the other things to file with the memo, updated financial statement, a child support guideline of child, you know, if there's child support in the case and a deviation worksheet, if it's applicable. Um, and um, sometimes judges like proposed judgments as well. So certain judges will say, I'm not calling the case to pretrial without the proposed judgment. Um, some of them actually have it on a piece of paper taped up in their courtroom. And typically you'll know, like if it's a handwritten um, pretrial order, it'll have it on there. But sometimes like these forms, they don't say that. So sometimes I think it's better to be safe than sorry and prepare one and bring it with you. It also helps. And I find that if you're not sure how to start the memo, okay, what's my theory? Sometimes you can do the proposed judgment. Here's what my client eventually wants. This is what he or she is looking to get. Now, this is my goal. Now, how am I going to get there? So you sort of back into it. So you write the judgment first, and then you can tailor your theory to say, this is how I'm going to get what I want. These are the facts and the law that are going to get me this. And sometimes it'll just help you. Um, but I bring it just to be safe if you're not sure about that particular judge. Um, uh, other things to bring with you, past financial statements that were filed in the case in the event, you know, you say somebody didn't file one, they, they hand it to you the day of. And you see, this is completely different from the last one they filed four months ago. What is going on? You know, you want to be able to, to look at the differences, call it out, um, that type of thing. You should bring your the pleadings index, um, particularly the complaint for divorce, the counterclaim, if any, and then any affidavits or interrogatories, because, you know, they have signed that under the pains and penalties of perjury. So you want to be able to have that available as well. Um, <clears throat> so at the pretrial conference itself, I want to touch a little bit on presentation. So everybody needs, you know, every lawyer has their own brand and every lawyer is different in court. Not everybody does things the same way. Um, so you need to decide what kind of lawyer you're going to be in the courtroom. Um, and, you know, I would say 99% of the time, probably 100% of the time, judges do not like lawyers to go nuclear right out of the gate. That's, you know, just they don't like that. So, you know, I think that it's easier to get your point across and the judges listen if you're clear you're concise, you're calmly explaining it. Look, I know this stuff's emotional and sometimes we get very passionate about our client's position, but you got, you just keep it, you know, again, we're, we're the salespeople. So I'm going to sell you and I'm not going to do it in a, an abrasive manner. Um, and, you know, that actually helps sometimes if the other side is going completely nuclear and, you know, they're sort of out of control you look even calmer and, and the judge hears you as being the more reasonable voice in the room, which can be helpful to your client. Um, and another big thing is not to interrupt the other lawyer. You're going to hear, they're going to present stuff that you don't agree with. They're going to say things that maybe you don't think are true. Um, that happens sometimes because we, you know, we hear what our clients tell us. So sometimes the presentation comes out in a way that we're like, wait, that's not what our client told us. Well, probably not. Um, but interruption is the rudest form of communication and judges don't like it. And I would say most of the time, the judges will cut people off and tell them not to do it. They will say, counsel, you had your turn. You know, it's the other turn's time to speak. You will get your chance to respond or something like that. But if they don't, if they're just not paying attention or whatever, you know, it, you should say something like, you know, Your Honor, can I can I please finish what I'm trying to say? My brother, sister, counsel had the opportunity to do that, and my client, you know, should have an equal opportunity for you to hear his or her position. Um, and again, very calm, cool, collected, and the judges will respond well to that. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say another thing that sort of Jen touched on is if you've got a working separation agreement, if you guys have been kicking something back and forth, but there are are issues that are not fully resolved. Um, you know, you still have to do, like I said, a memo, but you can narrow the memo to just the particular things that are still on the table. Bring the agreement with you. If it's, you know, just putting a number in for child support or, you know, something very simple, once you get the feedback from the judge, you can go in the hallway. You guys could do a little handwritten, you know, have them initial next to the handwritten change, go back in and get them divorced. I've done that before. Um, but you have to be really far along. I would never recommend, you know, if there's an agreement with a ton of handwriting on it, you have to assume that it was not a well thought out, well put together agreement. And, you know, the concern for you all is 
you do this, everybody's writing it. Your client thinks they understand it. You know, you're drafting on demand. It's a big rush to get out of the courthouse before they kick you out at, you know, 420. And, um, and then your client signs it. And then the next day he or she is like, well, wait, I don't understand what I just signed. And then they got the buyer's remorse. And then it's on you because you're like, I let them sign this. You know, I should have said, you know what? We've made a lot of progress here today. Let's go back to our offices. You know, let's, let's finalize this. You can even ask the judge if you think you've gotten good feedback. You know, I've done this before at a pretrial. You know, this has been a really helpful judge. You know, we went on the hallway, we talked, came back in, we said, this is what we're going to agree to do. Can we come back in two weeks with a full agreement? Um, and the judge said, sure, I'll, and I'll fit you in. It'll be quick. It'll be on Zoom um, at that point. So certain judges will do that if they think that it's right on the cusp of settlement. So, you know, after the pretrial, don't be afraid to reach out to the other side. If you think that there was progress made, you know, for your client, I mean, the goal of every case is not to try it, it's to settle it. Yeah, cases get tried. It happens all the time. But the goal of of our job is to help people resolve their issues, not try every single case. So if you think that there was progress, you think it was good feedback, reach out to that other lawyer and, and try to resolve the case, you know, and, and that typically happens, hopefully, after a pretrial, after you've heard what the judge said, good, bad, or indifferent, um, you know, maybe it wasn't great for your client, but he or she is going to save $50,000 on a trial by resolving this case, um, you know, and that's for, for your client to make that business decision. You know, you heard what the judge said. What do you want to do? You want to roll the dice? I mean, sometimes people do. It's, it's you know, they feel the need that they need to be heard. And I totally get that. And some say, you know what? I don't want to spend my kids, you know, all my money that I need to spend for my kids' college on you. I don't take offense to that. I, I don't care. I don't want you to spend it all on me. I want you to spend it on your kids. So, um, you know, that, that's my spiel. Thank you. And I think, Katie, just to touch on what you just said about the, you know, do you want to roll the dice conversation? I think sometimes it's even productive to have that prior to the pretrial, right? Let's say that Absolutely. there was really good negotiations and you're pretty close, right? Your client wants you know, in my example from before, husband's looking for $100,000 of inherited money that he put down on the, you know, real estate back and it's a long-term marriage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the other side's willing to do 60 or 75, like some, some good chunk of what husband's yeah. looking for, best case scenario. You know, I, in that case, I would usually talk to my client before going into that pretrial and say, listen, we got them here. Your risk of having, you know, once the judge makes his or her comments, it might, you know, we can't have them unhear it. So, you know, if the judge says I'm not required to give a dollar for dollar, you know, reimbursement in this case, I don't think I would because it's a 25 year marriage and, you know, there's no prenup and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think sometimes, you know, you might want to have that, you know, the post pretrial um, discussion about, about settlement, even before the pretrial, if yes. you guys are fairly close, because once the judge opens their mouths and gives guidance, that's what they're supposed to do. That's what the purpose of the pretrial is. Someone loses leverage, right? So in my example, if wife hears that the judge is not going to reimburse for that 100,000, well, that 75,000 she was going to give is now off the table. Why, why would yep. she go back to that, right? So I think it's important for your clients to understand that, you know, proceeding with a pretrial um, and hearing feedback, you, you want to weigh the pros and cons of that too. Because if, like Katie said, if it's not to your client's benefit, you know, you could be in a worse position after the pretrial than you were going in on it. Right. Yeah. So that's, yeah. you know, and at least yeah, I'm a big, and, and depending on the case, like I'm a big, you know, send an email, you know, documenting if, if, if you are, if you as the attorney are like, you know, I got them a good deal prior to the pretrial. I think it's a mistake going into the pretrial. I would document it in writing, send an email to confirm that, you know, I talked to you about this and you are, have exposure moving forward here from the judge and this offer yep. is going to be off the table just so then they can't come back and say to you, you know, it's, it's amazing how it just, you know, slips their mind how, you know, that you never explain that to them. So, you yeah. know, documenting things in writing, I think is always a good Absolutely. idea. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I agree with Jen, you know, I have a lot of times if, you know, in advance in that six month period of time between when the case was filed and the, and the pretrial, sometimes I'll, you know, if, if I think it's, it's one for conciliation, I'll try to do that. And mm -hmm. if we think it's working and we, you know, we don't want somebody to get entrenched because like Jen said, somebody hears something, that's it it's over and they, right. they will get entrenched in their position and you will never get them off of it because why would they, they just right. heard the judge say, I'm going to do X, 
you know, so, um, I tend to say, and I've said to clients, let's move this pretrial because we're making progress. The last thing you want to do is number one, spend all the money to prepare for it. Cause as you guys have heard, you know, the memo is intensive. It's, it's a really important document. And number two, you don't want people to get entrenched. And number three, you know, you basically have to go in and just put everybody on blast. You have to, I mean, that's what happens. And it's like, uh, you know, do you really want to drive these people further apart? So, um, you know, you might have to think about given where the case is at, does it make sense to move it? So, you know, most judges are pretty good. If you say in your, you know, joint motion, you know, we're, we're attending conciliation, we're working on a global resolution, you know, this type of stuff, those type, that type of verbiage, they'll move it without an issue. Obviously you can't move it multiple times. They're like, we've had enough, but, um, you know, if you think it's worth it, do it, save your clients the money, you know, save them the headache, um, and the possible entrenchment of your client or the spouse. Right. Right. And, and uh, to the point of the proposed judgment, I remember, you know, especially like you mentioned, Katie, if you're going for a judge that you're not in front of a lot, you know, usually in our practices, we're kind of in the same counties and you might dabble in other counties, but you're not as familiar with judges there. Um, I remember going up to Essex, which I'm not up there a ton. Um, and, but I know from my times up there that most Essex judges require the proposed judgments, right? Mm-hmm. And I believe it was a new judge up there or someone transferred up there. So I wasn't sure, but I knew it's Essex. I'm going to bring this proposed judgment because it rather, you know, better safe than sorry. And it was the circumstance, Katie, that you mentioned where it was, wasn't on the proposed order. I mean, excuse me, it wasn't on the pretrial order. Um, it was taped when you went to check in with the clerk, it was taped up there. And yeah. I thank God I had it in my file because it said just what you said, you know, we will not hear a pretrial unless there's a proposed judgment. And it's such an important document that you don't want to be stuck running outside and handwriting a proposed judgment. It's not a good look for your client to see you doing that. Right. So I, you know, unless, you know, this, this judge does not require proposed judgments, you know, I think it's good to do one. And, and even if judges who don't require them, I was in a pretrial the other day and the judge, didn't require a proposed judgment, but kind of said to everybody, what are you looking for? And what are you looking for? Essentially recite to me a proposed judgment, right? Yeah. And having that available to you will just make it easier. So then you're you know, running down. This is what I'm looking for. Um, so I think, you know, and that's another reason, you know, for when Katie just mentioned continuing it, because, you know, along with the memo, you know, you're doing all these other tasks that need to be done to correctly pre-try a case and your clients are paying for it. So, you know, if you are very close, you know, there's no sense in, in, you know, moving forward and having the clients pay all this money when, you know, like I said, it, it might not be to your clients, you know, benefit, but there are some cases where, you know, if you feel like the other side's not moving and, you know, it never fails, Katie, I'm sure you've had these cases too, where, you know, you don't hear from the other side at all until, you know, you're asking for a four-way, they're not responding to you, you know, Oh, by the way, with that, when we're when you're scheduling a four-way, you will inevitably have, have, like I said, attorneys who are just not responding, right? You want to do that in writing, have, you know, have all those emails because you go to court and the judges are going to be upset if you didn't have a four-way meeting or they get back to you two days before and you couldn't coordinate it because you're in court the day before the pretrial, right? So you want to have proof showing all the times that you reached out to this other attorney to schedule that four-way meeting. Very important. Um, and I lost my train of thought there. But I think that is that is very important there. <laughs> so much that goes into this. <laughs> I know. I know it. Let me see. I think I see that we have a question. All right. So I'm going to answer live here. Kate, I'm learning how to do this. Um, have you held, had cases where a party is contesting a premarital agreement? Sure have. Yep. <laughs> um, and I think, I don't know about you, Katie, but I think those cases, um, you know, they're a little different. I mean, they still follow the same plan, right? But I think there's a few added layers of one discovery. I think it's, you know, depositions in those type of cases, are usually, in my opinion, more important to have before a pretrial than maybe run-of-the-mill divorce cases because you want to have the facts that surround the execution and negotiation of the prenuptial agreement. Um, There are other types of discovery that I don't always do in other cases, again, to kind of, you know, cost-benefit for my client, but I do do in prenup cases like uh, requests for admissions. And there there are other 
nuanced discovery that I think it's important to have done prior to the the pretrial. Um, and also, I think either at the pretrial, that's the first time you see the judge at the pretrial. Um, you know, you need to figure out whether the judge is inclined to bifurcate the trial. And what that means is, you know, whether the judge is going to have a little mini trial first on just the enforceability of the prenup. And then we take it from there. Basically, if the prenup is upheld, you know, if there are children, then we have to kind of move on with the child related issues. Um, or if if there's no children and the prenup covers all issues and the case is kind of over at that point, um, if the prenup is not upheld at the, the first trial, then we go on to move to move on. So I think judges are very different. And even the same judge kind of handles prenups differently depending on the case. So I think getting clarity at that pretrial, if not before, if you happen to be in on a motion, maybe the judge will let you guys know beforehand, which is ideal, because then you know yeah. when dis you know what discovery needs to be done, et cetera, for that first trial. Um, but at least leaving that pretrial, you should know how the judge is going to run this this trial schedule is it bifurcated are we going to do everything all at once you know both meaning there's gonna be one trial on the enforcement of the prenup and you also have to be ready with the section you know 34 factors if the if the prenup's not upheld alimony issues etc um so that's something very important to get from the judge at uh feedback on at the pretrial conference at least you know yeah, yeah. i don't know that i would add much else to that um, in terms of the memo itself, yeah. um, you know, I would, you know, in the theory of the case, if you're the one that's, you know, you want it upheld or whoever you are, um, you know, make sure you lay the law out and explain why this prenup is, you know, a mess or why it should be enforced and take the law and your facts, put it all in there. Um, because again, mm -hmm. not hiding anything and the other side probably already knows why you think a certain thing. I mean, there's really no secrets here. I mean, this is not, we don't, we don't do trial by ambush in the probate and family court. Um, at least you're not supposed to, and judges don't like it. So, um, lay it all out there, put all your case law in there. Um, because that's going to be, and get your memo in three days in advance, uh, so that the judge has time to read it and think, okay, well, you know, if this is what the prenup says, and probably if somebody had filed the complaint for divorce, it probably was attached, I would assume. Mm -hmm. So it should yeah. be in the file somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, the judge is going to be able to take a look at it and, you know, read along with your memo of, yeah, this seems, you know, bad. This strips, you know, one of the parties of all their marital rights and or not, or this seems they all had good lawyers. They all it wasn't signed, you know, on the eve of the wedding, you know, put it all in there. Doesn't yeah. hurt. And I think definitely bring a bring an extra copy of the prenup to the pretrial, because I've had a case where many cases actually where, you know, the prenup was filed, but it didn't make it to the to the file, right? So if you only have your copy that has all your markings all over it, a judge can't take that, right? And it's important for them to read the prenup, obviously. So I always have a clean version of the prenup with me, um, you know, just in case the court says it's not here. And then you could at least hand it to to the clerk at that point. And I think I think you're right. I think, I think, you know, not to you know, downplay what we do, but it's kind of the same issues over and over again, right? So, you know, you trying to hide what you're going to argue on a particular case, you're really not fooling anybody because, you know, usually the other side from the moment the case, you know, comes in the door, you know, you know, you know what the other side's going to argue, you know what your argument's going to be, you know, it's, it's not, you know, that unusual, um, you know, so I think having, it all laid out. I was telling Katie when, you know, before you guys all signed on, I had a case recently where um, I filed, I e-filed the memo, you know, three days. Sometimes I even do it a little before three days because, you know, with the e-filing system, sometimes it takes a little while to actually, you know, um, get uploaded or whatever they do. Um, so I sometimes I even do at, at a minimum three days because you want to make sure that it makes it to the file. And, you know, we went, got to the pretrial and the other attorney was filing it that day. And, you know, she did all this work on a memo, but the judge pre-tried the case only having read the the memo that was e-filed in advance because, you know, this the judge has, you know, many cases in front of her. She doesn't have a time to read a 12-page memo and then comment. So, um, you know, it really does a disservice to your client for the judge to be hearing only one side, you know, being prepared with one side's arguments and not the other. So, you know, you get it in early. And what I usually do is even reach out to the other side to say, 
you know, hey, when do you want to exchange memos? Because, you know, maybe if I am filing mine five days in advance, maybe we agree, hey, we're going to exchange ours on Friday. And that's when I'll kind of, we'll simultaneously exchange them by agreement. You know, sometimes that makes your client feel better because they will. They're going to say, well, he had mine, you know, a week ago. That's not fair. You know, and, and I get it. But it, it, like Katie said, I don't think it really matters that much. Um you know, and speaking of, of client management a little bit, one thing I, you know, usually tell my clients before the pretrial is the judge is watching you, right? So like Katie said, inevitably, the other side's going to say something that your client doesn't like. It always happens. It would be strange if it didn't. didn't. Um, so the the gestures, the rolling the eyes, they sometimes, I don't know, Katie, do, do you have clients that like to poke you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they pull on me or and I said, don't. Oh. You don't touch oh. me. You don't whisper to me. You cannot do this. Yes. Um, you know. You know. So what I usually do in certain cases is give give them a pad of paper and a pen and let them write their comments down because that kind of lets them get it out. They're relaying it to you, but you're not making a scene in front of the judge who is watching, right? So you want to make sure that they understand that. And you know, yeah. I think I think they also have kind of like a explaining to them the purpose of a pretrial is is important right because it's not like on the movies it's not you know it's not like katie said i mean yeah the, some attorneys are you know uh, loose cannons right they're they're up there they're interrupting the judge they're interrupting you they're you know arms are flailing they're all over the place and you know they're putting on a bit of a show but doing what we do for long enough, we know that that's not, that's distracting to the judge. The judges, you know, I, I never, I'm always amazed with how many attorneys interrupt the judges. <laughs> like, I just, I don't get it. Um, so I think explaining that to the, the client so they can be prepared that, you know, I'm going to speak first with a plaintiff, you know, and then they're going to speak. We're not, this isn't a dialogue. We're not going back and forth at that juncture. Maybe there is a dialogue later on in the pretrial where the judge kind of wants to hear from both of you when you're kind of talking, you know, one after the other, but you know, just prepare them for the fact that interrupting, it's not, it's not a good look and it's not going to give you any points with the judge. It's just not. Um, and I you like also, I'm oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I just interrupted you. <laughs> See, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was just going to, I was just going to say, I always tell the clients, it's like a play. If yeah. you can see the judge, the judge can see you. Right. So every single thing that you do, yep. you think that they don't see you, but they do. Yep. So so you need to be in control. Yep. Uh, and, you know, and one other thing to sort of to touch on what Jen just said, if you're a loose cannon and you're being sort of theatrical and, you know, yes, there's a little bit of theater in the whole you know thing. But at the same time, just remember, whatever case you're there in a pretrial, this may not be the last case you have with that judge or that mm -hmm. attorney, mm -hmm. because you want to have good. You want to be a zealous advocate, but you need to have good relationships with other lawyers. You mm -hmm. want to know. Like I've had other lawyers that I've had cases with subsequently refer me cases so we could have mm -hmm. another case together again because we got along well, we settled the case, you know, we stuck up for our clients, but we weren't crazy people. Like I've tried cases against people where I'm like, I only want to try cases against you because that was great. Like mm -hmm. that is important. And that goes back to what is your brand? How is your presentation? Um, remember that this is not your only case. So don't go scorched earth with opposing counsel because it is going to come back to you. Right, right. And as important as your client is, you know, it's it's not more important than your reputation. So they can't, you know, you practice how you practice and you can't let them tell you otherwise. I mean, that's really, you know, if they want someone who is going to be the interrupter and, you know, not letting the judge finish their sentence, you know, you can be straight with them and say you're probably with the wrong attorney because that's not me and that will never be me because in my you know practice, that's not, um, you know, what's best for my clients. And you're doing it because you believe the way you practice is what is more receptive. You know, the judge is more receptive to that. Um, so, yeah. So let me just see. I think we have a little bit more time. Let me see if we have any other questions. If I finish that one, no other questions at this point. Here. If anyone has any questions before we wrap up, feel free to just type them in the Q&A section. 
see here. <clears throat> if property division is the only issue, how fast does it go? So, I mean, I think that's kind of a loaded question, meaning, you know, it depends on a lot of factors, right? It depends on, you know, the length of the marriage. Are we talking property division after a 20-year marriage or property division after a, you know, two-year marriage? And and like I said, with the narrowing of the issues in the in the pretrial, um, excuse me, in the four-way meeting, you know, do we agree on some of the issues or is it, you know, literally, you know, we don't agree on the color of the sky. So I think, I think if you can start off with a general premise, right. I mean, every case is different. I don't want to make it sound like every single case is the same, but you know, we're talking over a 20 year marriage, you know, without a prenup, no postnup, et cetera, you know, we're probably looking at generally a, a equal division of the assets. And if, if the parties and the counts are at least on the page, same page of, as that, then you kind of go from there and then you kind of start, I look at it as like horse trading. Okay. Who's keeping what? And if there isn't an agreement as to, you know, I've had many cases where, you know, both parties want to keep the house and there's really no compelling reason, you know, for instance, a compelling reason in my book would be mom is going to be the primary um, custodial parent of the young kids and it's in their school district. And it makes sense for mom to keep the house because it's close to their school. There's some other, especially relating to the kids, that's where judges kind of can be swayed that, oh, it makes sense for mom to keep the house. Um, you know, something that I always keep in mind and I always kind of brace my client for is, you know, if an easy out judges want easy solutions right and you know it's it's setting up the feedback from the judge that says if you can't agree on who's keeping the house we're just going to sell it yep easy solution <laughs> um so you know that's kind of my spell i think i think division of prop you know property division sometimes it could be you know if if, if Property division is if we're close and it's, you know, we're arguing about, you know, $10,000 here or there, that could be the situation where you have an agreement. Like Katie said, we have kind of a blank where you fill in the transfer of payment here from the judge and fill in that number. Right. Um, or you have that discussion with your client about, listen, we're apart by $10,000. You're going to spend X on going to this pretrial. You know, does this make sense? Um but I think, you know, pro I've had property division cases. I've I've had a, a what was that marriage? A two-year marriage property division case that went to trial and lasted years. So I mean it 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 depends. You know, I, I hate that answer, but I think it really depends on the factors of the case. And if you're a judge, and and, and most judges are give really pointed feedback because they want to settle your case. They don't want to, you know, have every case that comes before them go to trial. So if you're able to really lay out, like Katie said, lay out the case so the judge understands what the issues are, I think you'll get really good feedback. And then you can go back to your client and figure out this is where the judge is leaning. And this is, you know, so this is what we're dealing with. Do you want to go to trial? You know, and I also might say on property division, you know, if you're, if, you know, with your memo, you may want to attach an asset division sheet. If you're looking for yes. like a, a disproportionate division of the estate, you know, show the judge what you're talking about. Cause like sometimes you read it in prose and they don't really understand. But if you look at a spreadsheet and you see the bottom line and it's like this person's getting $2 million, this person's getting, you know, a million five. Like you just want to be able to show them um, what it is you're talking about. And sometimes Absolutely. it's very helpful. Cause some people, some attorneys will like say something like, oh, my client's looking for a, you know, 60, 40 division of the, of the estate. Well, I've heard judges say a lot. Well, what does that mean? Like, what does that look like? How could I say, how can I comment on whether 40% to spouse one is equitable if if we're talking in, you know, again, generalities? Who's right. keeping the house? How does that work? And what is the underlying, you know, division going to look like? So I 100% agree. I think, I think anything other than an equal division, I think you really should have an asset schedule yes. to show the judge, this is what I'm looking for. And this is what, you know, wife will have. This is what husband will have. And, you know, that's what I think is equitable in this case because of these factors. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Oh, I think we have another. Let's see. So we finished that one. All right. Do people often fight over gifts to one spouse and trusts? Yes. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, you know, again, I think part of discovery is really, you know, diving in. There's, I can't think of how many cases I have where um, 
you know, a client will say something to you generally, oh, I got a gift of, you know, $50,000 from my parents. And you dig deep, deeper and you ask them for proof, you know, do you have the check? It wasn't that long ago. And then it was, you know, gifted to both parties. It's, you know, gifted, you know, on the on the memo line or whatever, on the, the payable too, it's both parties' names. Well, thank goodness you found that out ahead of time before you start going into the pretrial talking about, you know, this gift um, to one party. So uh, absolutely. And then the trust, same thing. I think it's it's important to understand, um, have the trust document, you know, right in the beginning of the case. So you understand the workings of the trust, you know, the beneficial interest, is it revocable, irrevocable, blah, blah, blah. Um, also understand, because the judges want to know if, if there's been any disbursements during the marriage where they relied upon. So I think you really have to, you know, part of that six month period is not just getting information from the other side. It's also getting information from your clients. So then you're well informed because if you just go to the judge and say, oh, there's a trust in my clients, uh, you know, th- you know, one third beneficiary, you know, that doesn't tell the judge anything, right? You need to kind of know more about, you know, the workings of this trust. So, um, you know, absolutely. They they certainly um, fight over those things. And I think having the information about, about the gift or about the trust gives the judge the information on this particular marriage to be able to give you guidance, you know, because other than without the specifics, it's tough for a judge to give any guidance. Yeah, no, I, 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 I don't really have anything to add to what you said, Jen. I completely agree. I think, and I, I think it's important, like Jen said, when your client tells you something, make sure you get all the information. You don't want to get sandbagged because the worst thing you could do is be like, well, it was a gift. And the other side's like, oh yeah, well, I've got this. And you're like, oh no, you know, because then, then it's just, it's a mess. You don't want that to happen. Right. 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 Cause at least you can prepare your client for, you know, the realities of the, you know, what the law has to say about the actual circumstances, not just, you know, the, yeah. the and I think they wish that existed. <laughs> yeah. And I also think sort of, and I don't know if it sort of answers this question, but it might touch on it is, you know, with respect to inheritance. So if somebody says, well, I got an inheritance. Okay. Well, I need to know when did you get it? Where did you put it? What'd you do with it? Um, all of those things are factors that a judge is going to look at. If the person died 20 years ago and you use the inheritance and, you know, you, you guys bought the house you've lived in for the last two decades, probably not going to get that back. It's probably gone. It's, it's, you know, woven into the financial fabric of the marriage. It's out of there. If somebody died six months before you filed and this, the assets are segregated, they're in your name. You never used any, you never did anything with it. Like that's a different case. That's very different. And in that instance, a judge is, you know, they, you know, they may consider keeping it out. So I think you got to ask all of the questions because you want to be able to go into that pretrial and just be able to answer every question that that judge is going to throw at you because they're going to ask when, where, what happened to it? Like, you got to be ready. You got to be, you got all of your ducks in a row, have your notes. You know, I like to, I like to put notes together. Sometimes I don't even look at them. I do it like a day or two before. So I, it's, it's like, it's like when you're studying for the bar, for example, and I used to just rewrite stuff over and over because it would get in my brain. So sometimes I'll just write notes of how I want to lay out my you know, argument. Do I look at them? Almost never when I'm standing in front of the judge, but they're there um, right. in case I need them. But it also helps you prep. Um, so that's where I went off on a tangent on, of the gift question. But right. And even with the outline piece that you just mentioned, Katie, I remember you know, as a new attorney, I would always have this outline and then you quickly realize it never goes as planned. So it's kind of there as a safety net. But, yes. you know, some judges are different. Some judges have read the memos and they kind of just jump into questions. They don't really yeah. need it presentation because they've read your memo. Um, and that's why, like Katie said, have everything in the memo. Cause if you think you have the opportunity to orally say something to the judge, you might not, the judge might just say, okay, I've read both memos. My question is for you, Katie, X, Y, Z, yeah. when did the inheritance come in? And, you know, for the other attorney, whatever. Um, and, and so you have to, I think it's great. I still do notes. I still have the notes. I bring them with yep. me. It's more just kind of, like you said, for prep and to kind of, uh, you know, make sure that, you know, if, if, if all that's in my memo, I'm not as concerned and it should be in your memo, but um, be prepared for both ways. Be prepared to give a little presentation because some judges say, okay, Katie, I'll hear from you. Go ahead. And then yep. you start from scratch and you have to kind of present your case orally. Um, other judges don't. So I think you have to be prepared either way to either way. jump right in or to questions or to 
present to the judge essentially a concise version of your memo. It shouldn't be, you know, 45 minutes long. You know, the judge, assume the judge read your memo and you can kind of clarify with the judge, you know, judge, I know you have my memo, so I'll, I'll outline the main points for you. And then you go through kind of the main points of your memo. Um, so that's how I usually, you Me know, that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Good. All right, let me see here. All right, so I think at that point, I think I am all set. I don't see any other questions here. And I think we've, I know it's a lot and a lot of it is is mostly practice tips of what Katie and I have kind of found that works for us and what doesn't. So, I mean, I think with new lawyers, you kind of find your own groove and find what works for you and, you know, just make sure you're following the the requirements from the court. You can kind of, um, you know, be a little creative with your memo and, and put more, you know, um, more facts in that are required, but you want to make sure you're hitting what needs to be in there. And you're also hitting, you know, you're not giving the judge a 30 page memo. Yeah. They won't read it. <laughs> They will not read it. And they'll probably look at you and say, you know, this is insane why you handed me a 30 page memo. Um, All right. So I think. Thanks, Katie. It was nice to see you. And thanks for everyone. You as well. Thanks, everybody, for attending. This was actually really fun.